Welcome to Off Code, the show where we ignore the cultural codes and have real and intriguing conversations regarding the Black community and ways we can move forward to human flourishing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Off Code. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Kevin Briggins, and we have another great show for you guys today. Um, I know every episode I say I'm excited about the guests, but I'm really excited about this guest. Um, this is someone I like to call one of the official members of the Off Code family because this brother is always off code, right? Um, so, Mo, why don't you tell everybody who we have today? So, we have Chad O. Jackson. And my goodness, if you remember Uncle Tom 1, and if you've seen Uncle Tom 2, Chad was featured in both of those. In the first one, he was um, a contributor, but in the second one, he actually helped produce, direct, and write um, Uncle Tom 2. And so he, man, like, there's so much, I almost just want to retell the whole story of both movies or documentaries. Um, but I'm excited to have this conversation with him, because, especially because Uncle Tom, too, really just looks at the condition of the Black community. Um, our, gosh, um, maybe acceptance of a lot of Marxist policies and ideologies. But man, I, golly, Kevin, I, I'm with yep. you. I'm really yep. excited. Yep. So, so let, let's 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 do this. Let's bring Chad in and let's just have the conversation. Let's do it. Hello. Hey guys. Thanks thank so you much for having me. Well, thank yeah, you for joining here. us. Yeah. Let's start out with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, gosh, who are you? Um, I know we see you in Uncle Tom, both Uncle Toms, but maybe you can give us a little bit more story to who you are. Certainly. So, um, as you said, my name is Chad Jackson. Um, <laughs> the only reason I go by Chad O. Jackson is because apparently there's a lot of Chad Jacksons in America. It's a very common name. Um, so not to be confused with uh, the professional football player. But, yeah, so I grew up here in, in Texas, uh, near Dallas, Texas. I am an entrepreneur. I started my uh, my plumbing company here in Texas in 2018. 25 or 2015. So um, at the same time that I was running my small business, I was engaged in uh, grassroots Republican politics in Dallas. Uh, that's where Justin Malone, who's the director of Uncle Tom, found out about who I was. And so he was making a film about black conservatives and they asked me if I was willing to be a part of it. Uh, at first, I was reluctant to do it because I really didn't know uh, what their game plan was, whether it was going to be something exploitive or what have you. So uh, finally, I agreed to sit down and the uh, conversation flowed very organically. Uh, Justin asked really good questions. Um, they packed up their cameras and left and uh, they went their separate way. I went my separate way. Uh, when they left, they apparently took the footage to L.A. where they met with Jesse Lee Peterson and Larry Elder and they were able to impress Larry Elder with the footage. He he agreed to become the executive producer. He put Justin in touch with other more prominent, I guess you could say, black conservatives uh, like you know Brandon Tatum and Alan West and Herman Cain and others. And they made what became Uncle Tom. And so after the success of that film, 
uh, Justin asked me if I'd be interested in coming on board as a researcher for part two, because uh, he remembered a conversation that him and I had where, um, you know, I want to be a part of something like this, but I don't want to just peddle the same old talking points. I, I want to challenge people to go deeper. And after having remembered that conversation, he invited me to be part of the team. And I got to work researching and doing what I do. Um, it, researching is something that comes natural to me. If something uh, is of interest to me, I'm going to obsess over it. I'm going to, you know, check out all kinds of books, dig through all kinds of archives, go to the library, do all sorts of things to try to get to the bottom of the thing in which I'm interested. And so it was a perfect fit for me because I got to spend, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a day just researching for two years. And uh, what we got as a result was Uncle Tom Part Two. And it's a project that I'm very uh, proud of. I think I think uh, we we accomplished our goal of making it better than Part One, which was a hit, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to say, I mean, I want to give props to the the level of research that you guys did. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. The footage you were able to find and then just the the connections you were able to draw just from your research. I was really impressed um, by that. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. There's there were so many like new things. I'm in the space of race all the time. And there were things where I was like, really? So, yes, thank you for no, at what capacity. Gosh, looking um, specifically looking at like Black Wall Street, you know, one Black Wall Street is um, really used, I feel like, to weaponize um, white people and to, you know, just completely say, well, this is how I know that America is a historically racist country um, and mm -hmm. blacks have never recuperated from, you know, Black Wall Street. This is a part of um, the detriment of mm -hmm. America. But in, in Uncle Tom, too, one of the things that you guys highlight is that, well, Black Wall Street was rebuilt. Mm -hmm. Well, how could Black Wall Street be rebuilt if, you know, the narrative is that Black Wall Street is part of the problem that kept Black Americans down? Yeah. And so one of the things that I just walked away with was, wow, there, there was there was agency and, you know, people were really striving and doing well. And it wasn't, yeah. you know, with the help of government. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Black Wall Street, that was uh, kind of a, a, a internal uh, debate as to just how much we wanted to cover that story, or I wanted to tell the whole story from beginning to end. And of course, when you're making a documentary, you're kind of strapped for time and you have to uh, do a lot of things under the space of two hours. And had we really kind of gone my way, the, the film would have easily been about four hours long. So there's only so much you can say. Yeah. Uh, but what we found is that uh, even the whole uh, brawl in the first place, because that's what it was, it was more brawl than it was a, a, a massacre, which they started calling that two years ago. Um, but it was a brawl where a couple of dozen people died, uh, including white people. And the mainstream historians aren't honest about uh, what uh, it, what initiated the fight to begin with. Uh, the fact of the matter is there was communist play um, in the uprising, namely uh, the fact that there was a man named Richard Lloyd Jones. He was the editor of the Tulsa Tribune. Uh, he himself uh, had connections to the Communist Party, as well as many so-called progressive movements, both he and his wife. 
And he would constantly use the Tulsa Tribune to write these kind of articles that would stoke racial uh, agitation. Uh, he would try to uh, uh, say things in his newspaper that would get uh, uh, the Klan or other just racist whites to uh, uh, to do things that would cause trouble and turmoil. And he was finally able to be effective whenever he wrote the, the article, Nab Negro for Raping White Girl. And of course, mm -hmm. they were talking about Dick Rowland, who was arrested by the Oklahoma, or the Tulsa Sheriff's Department. And so he wrote that article. Of course, a white mob showed up to the jail. Uh, on the other side, you had A.J. Smitherman, who was an attorney for the NAACP, who was equally a race agitator. Uh, he wrote an article in their news in the black newspaper that caused a, a black mob to show up to the jailhouse. Uh, so they both showed up to the jailhouse. Both were angry. Uh, the white crowd demanded that the sheriff releases uh, Dick Rowland from his jail cell. Of course, the sheriff, being a man of the law, uh, said, no, I'm not going to do that. We believe in due process here, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, ultimately, Dick Rowland would go on to be uh, found not guilty of the crime. But uh, again, the people being emotionalized, being sensationalized by their respective newspapers uh, started brawling. And one thing led to another. And then you got the burning down of the buildings, so on and so forth. Uh, however, because uh, it was a brawl, because they understood that their respective sides were both in the wrong, uh, immediately after everything went down, they got to work rebuilding their own neighborhoods and they did rebuild their neighborhoods. And we have footage to, repove, to, to prove that they built, uh, rebuilt their own neighborhoods. And if you look carefully in that footage, you'll see white people shopping at black stores. And so again, it's, it's a situation where whites and blacks were uh, mingling with each other, were interacting with each other, even in the marketplace. Uh, but we're told by mainstream historians today that Black success ended in 1921 with the falling of Black Wall Street. It's a complete and utter lie, and they're doing it as part of their agenda. Man. Yes. I, one of the things that um, that I've, in studying Black Wall Street, have learned, too, is that in rebuilding, like, the Black, quote-unquote, Black area, there were many white people who came in and brought resources to be able to help, um, you know, uplift black people who had, mm. you know, been a part of this brawl. Um, it wasn't, or it isn't, um, it, it, it isn't the narrative that's currently in play. Yeah. And to the question of why would a communist or why would the communists want to, stoke that kind of racial division or entice that kind of racial friction? The answer is actually quite simple. Uh, to the extent that racial race relations in the South were improving, they were improving first and foremost in the marketplace. Uh, when you look at Tuskegee, for example, Tuskegee were like the, the, the students at Tuskegee were making the best bricks in the South. And so to the extent that people were building buildings and needed bricks, they would go to Tuskegee and buy their bricks, both white as well as black uh, customers. And so it was through the ex the exchange of, of, of monies in the marketplace where people were beginning to familiarize themselves with each other. And a lot of these so-called Jim Crow laws were beginning to be repealed at the municipal and state level well before the 1960s. And so race relations were improving. Uh, this didn't sit well with the communists because the communists uh, in the communist worldview, they believe 
that the government should own the means of production. They don't believe in private property and they sure as hell don't believe in entrepreneurship. And so, of course, you want to disrupt uh, the entrepreneurial spirit of the black uh, uh, community and replace it with a kind of race politics that the NAACP and others were trying to um, to get at the head with. And so there's a lot of nefarious reasons as to why uh, communists would be interested in in stoking race division uh, in a place like the South. Man, part of the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm saying that that's good stuff. When you talked about narrative, you talked about you know Tulsa and Black Wall Street. The thing that stood out to me was we've always been told that whites were just jealous of blacks, didn't want blacks to have anything, so they went to burn everything down, and that's just been the story, you know. And so I appreciate. You know, you coming with that history of what really happened and how it really got started. And, and, and it makes sense that that would um, happen that way. I also say I appreciate the the way you guys have pointed out kind of lifting the veil of the Marxist uh, agenda and attempts throughout the civil rights movement and throughout just the history of like the black community. Um when I was in Birmingham in 2019, I went because I had moved away and I came back and I was visiting and I did a a um, a uh, racial um, tour, a historic tour through the historic district with some friends who had never been to Birmingham. And the person who did the tour, he not only did he do the racial history tours, he also did communist tours and he was a self-proclaimed communist. And he was very proud of the communist history in Birmingham alongside the civil rights movement in Birmingham. And so uh, when I saw the documentary and you guys were tying these things together, I was like, that's what a car carrying communist told me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I thought it was good. And I really appreciate you guys kind of really kind of pulling that thread and showing the world hey, this is really what's going on. And it's really about the narrative that we're taught and why we're taught a particular narrative and why a particular narrative is constantly pushed to us, right? And so yeah. I just want to say, I mean, I know it's supposed to be, you know, interview question, but I'm just like, I'm just really appreciative of this documentary and that you guys were able to put this together and bring this out. Well, one of the things I think that's important to point out is that Cato Institute conducted a study in 2019, so not that long ago. And the question was, which do you prefer, socialism or capitalism? And they divided it by race. And what they found was that 60% of black people prefer socialism, whereas 40% prefer capitalism. Uh, when you look at other ethnic groups uh, that are not white, most of them prefer capitalism to socialism. So in other words, black people are the only people or the only ethnic group in America that prefers socialism to capitalism. Now, it hasn't always been that way. Mm -hmm. In fact, prior to the 1960s, again, the black community was, was very entrepreneurial. Now, some people would say that, well, they had no choice but to be because they weren't able to shop at white stores or what have you. And so whatever the reason is, uh, it, it's a fact that black people were, for the most part, entrepreneurial. Um, and the black schools were, were churning out productive black men and women. The black family was intact. Uh, you didn't have an increase in the number of out of wedlock births amongst black families until after the 1970s. And so again, there's a, there's a contrast 
between the before the 1960s and now in terms of the black mindset. And nobody has thought to ask the question of, well, why is that? And to the extent that people do explore that question, uh, they often say that it's because of LBJ's war on poverty policies. Uh, but what we do in Uncle Tom too is we lift up a few more layers and find out that it has way more to do. Uh, it has to do with a lot more than just just those policies. So, part of what you were saying about um, the Communist Party and their infiltration in um, or participation, um, you know, from the husband and wife, especially, and you know, the race baiter on the side of the NAACP. You know, when we flat, fast fast forward. 30 years, maybe, maybe 45, actually. And you look at someone like Herbert Marcuse, who I'm not sure if he was, um, a, you know, self-avowed communist, but he definitely was Marxist. Um, mm-hmm. His part of his plan and thought process was that if he could get the minority, especially black people, to um, understand their oppression and they would revolt. And so that line of thinking, um, to me, goes hand in hand with a, a race baiting, you know, that you you were talking about just a minute ago as far as, you know, how can you push the buttons of Black people and what will happen if those buttons are pushed? That, you know, it, it's a same kind of narrative, I think, that we see today. You know, we saw it in the in the 60s, we see it, we saw it in the 70s, and we still see it today of, you know, what happens when, when the buttons get pushed. But um, I think you bring up a really good point as to, you know, Uncle Tom too, lifting up the curtain a little bit, lifting the veil beyond just LBJ's policies and things like that. Can you touch on that a little bit more? more as to what are some of the policies that you see being um, in play that extend beyond um, LBJ's, you know, policies and things that he put into place? Well, I think the first thing one must do is to not think in terms of policy, but think in terms of, of cultural shifts, if that makes sense. Because people tend to think that human behavior is influenced by law and what the government is doing, when in reality it's the other way around. Um, Anytime uh, the elites want to push public policy that will in effect expand the role of government, which will give uh, the donors more power, as it were, uh, the way that they do it first and foremost is through uh, social justice or some kind of movement on the streets. Because the idea is if you can win in the court of public opinion, you can subsequently win in the court of law. And it's been that way for a long time. I and mean, if, if you look at first wave feminism or otherwise known as women's suffrage, um, from the surface, we all thought that we're just giving pe- women the right to vote. That's all. N- nothing else to see here. Uh, but the reality is when you look at those who, who uh, finance women's suffrage and first wave feminism, you'll see that what they were actually trying to do is to tax the feminine half of the population. Um, They wanted to tax more people. Uh, At the same time, what they wanted to do was to get children into the school in an early age so as to indoctrinate them to become statists. Because to the extent that you have children in the home being influenced by uh, their respective cultures, um, you, you can't get access to those children's minds. And you want, the, 
you want to uh, get access to a child's mind <clears throat> in the Marxist or secular worldview because do they because they're strength in numbers, right? As these kids become older and become a voting age, uh, they can be uh, participants. They can assist in this quest for globalism instead of rebelling against it because they like their freedom and they like their individuality and they like their culture. You want to begin to break away at that culture. You want to begin to break away at that spirit of rugged individualism. And you want to, you especially want to break away at the spirit of Christianity. And so we have effectively moved from Christianity as our cultural undergird to now postmodern secularism as our cultural undergird. This has all happened at the behest of social justice movements over time. And so to answer your question, <clears throat> you asked about um, some of the things that caused a kind of downfall in black culture or the black community since the 1960s that, that is not directly related to LBJ's policies. Because don't get me wrong, LBJ's policies uh, did you know, have a huge part in it. I, I, I would just say it wasn't the part. Um, I would say that there was a mindset shift. When you look at people like Booker T. Washington, who died in 1915, he was teaching black folks as well as white folks to cast down your bucket where you are, uh, namely to take advantage of opportunities regardless of what your circumstances are. Uh, it's incumbent upon you to be a man. It's incumbent upon you to be a woman of virtue, to be children of honor, um, to be productive, to become entrepreneurs, to become business owners, to become basically productive citizens, regardless of what people are saying about you. He was teaching that, and it was having tangible effects, especially in the South. Uh, in fact, he started something called the Negro Business League, and one of his protégés, uh, Philip Payton Jr., who was a real estate agent, um, he moved to New York, and he started buying these building, buildings in Harlem, when Harlem was predominantly white. And he was the kind of pioneer, if you will, in helping to turn Harlem black. And so Booker T. Washington's mindset is what built Harlem in the first place. It's the same mindset that built Tulsa or, or you know, the Greenwood District of Tulsa, as well as these other black street or black Wall Streets across the South, uh, because we were taking our uh, responsibility to be men seriously. Now, as you got into the 1960s, the rhetoric began to shift at the behest of people like Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders, where they said that we can't be men, that uh, we haven't been able to be men because of our circumstances. Now, of course, they were exaggerating those circumstances. Whenever Martin Luther King gave his speech about the two Americas and black people live on a lonely island and white people live in a land of abundance, he was exaggerating. Um, and he was doing what Saul Alinsky later wrote about in the book Rules for Radicals, where if you want to be a community organizer, a radical revolutionary community organizer, what you must first do is to create dissatisfaction and dis disenchantment uh, in the minds of the people you wish to organize. Because to the extent that you can get them angry and bitter, you can get them to organize uh, for action, for political campaign. And so get this. The young, the young black folks in the 1960s and 1970s, the young baby boomers, um, were uh, being encouraged to rebel against the adult generation of their day. And it wasn't just black people, it was also white people. You had your hippie movement, you had your second wave feminists, you had your free love movement, you had all these different mo movements, including the Weatherman Underground, who were being encouraged to 
uh, rebel against the adult generation. You also have the publication of Mad Magazine. You had the emergence of rock and roll. As you get into the 1970s, you have the emergence of black exploitation. Uh, this genre of films that are are are, are celebrating and encouraging hustling and pimping and and chasing after women and all sorts of other things. And so what happened was the young black folks began to identify more with what they were seeing on a television screen and what was coming through their radio speakers than what their dads and granddads and great granddads were doing. And so there was a cultural shift. There was a mindset shift that took place uh, to where by the time LBJ's policies come into play, the, demor demortal the demoralization has already taken place to the extent where we're more likely to, to utilize these policies as opposed to rejecting them. Because Asians have been here since the early 1900s. Why did they not take advantage of a lot of these so-called war on poverty policies? Now, the difference is that they didn't have these so-called race leaders who were always in the news telling us what it means to be Asian or what it means to be black. And so to the extent that we would have been left alone and we would have allowed the race uh, relations to heal uh, as they were before the emergence of these civil rights or these social justice movements, you would have saw, in my opinion, and in the opinion of, of many others, um, a, a kind of natural healing uh, that would have taken place without the help, uh, or I would say the hindrance of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's a lot of knowledge. My goodness, that that's good stuff. And it gives us a different way to think about it because, you know, I, I'm not sure how many times we, on the front end, consider culture. I think on the back end, we'll say, well, the policy was created. The policy then, you know, helped to deteriorate the culture. But if the culture is already going that way, then it'll make it easier for the policy to be instituted. What, yeah, what, do, you, what do you think the, the, like, gosh, like what pulled the plug on our ability to maintain the culture that we've had as Black people in America? Because, I mean, you go back to slavery and you could have slaves that were allowed to work, you know, work for their freedom and buy their freedom and then buy the freedom of their family. Yeah, it took a long time, but I mean, this was the spirit of black people and then you get through the civil war into reconstruction and you see what upwards of 300 people you know serving in um in offices you know in the in the south and um you know we get through all of this that is horrible you know we get through jim crow we get through you know all of these things successfully with the black family being intact um with us starting institutions and keeping our um, religious heritage and, and the relationship, you know, with Jesus. And it didn't, I mean, th there were bad movies. There, there were pushes for, you know, cultural shifts before the sixties. And so what, what do you think what is that, that moment or that, um, that pivotal thing that, I guess where, you know, as a community, we eventually said, you know what, I think this might be better. This culture might be better. 
Well, um, it's a number of things. Uh, the, the, one of the biggest tools in the communist arsenal is that of sabotage. And they were able to figure that out um, in, a, in a pretty extensive way. You have to keep in mind that these are people who've invested heavily not only in the social sciences, which gives them the uh, kind of know-how of how to organize people, but they've also studied the cognitive sciences, which means they know psychology and how the mind works and uh, how everybody essentially wants to be liked. And, to, and so to the extent that you're being uh, uh, undermined or sabotaged uh, or peer pressured, you're going to be more likely to go along with that which is considered trendy or that which is considered in or cool. Uh, one of the people who we had the privilege of uh, interviewing for Uncle Tom part one was Bob Woodson. And he describes it as uh, someone who was a teenager around the climax of the civil rights movement. He said it was kind of like a, a current or, or a, a storm. And you went outside and the, 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 the rain was falling and the clouds were moving and everybody uh, was just going along with it. it. It was something that you were just kind of sucked into and swept along with. And so it was very difficult to deny it. It, it. it was a viral moment in history, so to speak. Um, and so you didn't want to be the person who was kind of left out of that. You wanted to be somebody who was a part of it. And so there were very few people who were, um, as far as young people are concerned, because the older generation, um, they kind of knew what was up and they didn't want any parts of it. Um, in fact, Martin Luther King wasn't popular amongst older, older Blacks uh, in the 1960s. It was more younger Blacks who were kind of picking up what he was putting down, so to speak. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I came across, uh, as far as my research is concerned, when it comes to a lot of the literature and even a lot of the, the newsreels that were uh, going out around that time, was you had a lot of these young black intellectuals uh, sabotaging the older black generation, calling them Uncle Toms. Oh, we don't want to go along with these old Uncle Tom uh, Negro leaders. They don't know what they're talking about. They're stymated. This is the kind of language that they would use. This was the kind of language that was in the black newspapers. This is the kind of language that was even in the news. You had white news reporters uh, calling these older black pastors Uncle Toms for not uh, believing or going along with the civil rights movement. Um, and so that began to disperse in, uh, uh, into other elements of life in terms of, of whether or not a person wanted to be uh, a business owner or to carry themselves a certain way. And that same thing persists to this very day where if you're a young black student who goes to a predominantly black school, you'll be made fun of for not having the right haircut or not wearing the right clothes or shoes, uh, where you'll be made fun of for talking a, a certain way or, or, or having an interest in learning and reading and things of that nature. So it's, it, it becomes this, this, it becomes this kind of, you know, crab in a, in a barrel type situation where everybody is holding each other to a low standard where no one can rise above lest they get made fun of. And so this was a, a strategic tactic that these young folks were encouraged to employ by a lot of these communist uh, organizers. And believe me, there were communist organizers. They literally had their, their training camps and their training schools where they would 
teach you the kind of rhetoric to use, the kind of ad hominems to resort to, the kind of, of tactics to organize, so on and so forth. And, and sabotaging, undermining uh, uh, leadership, black leadership that were not connected to Marxists was part and parcel of that organi organizing and those training uh, efforts. And so to answer your question uh, of, of what caused the, the plug to be on, you know, to be pulled out of the wall, so to speak, in terms of shifting the culture, I would say whenever they began to resort to calling uh, uh, people who meant well, Uncle Tom, sellout, bootlicker, so on and so forth, uh, which is something that the Black Panther Party did very well. Mm -hmm. um, um, that's whenever we began to kind of hold each other uh, to a low standard, and that began the kind of down downward spiral of the Black community. Man, um, that's really good. I've I've noticed that um, there seems to be a pattern of uh, how do you say this? Um, if we look at the narrative we were taught what happened in terms of the black community, it's like this continuous narrative of oppression. The black community was always down. We've always had these problems. And it's, it, they, they do the whole chain from slavery to Jim Crow to um, Tulsa to redlining. And, to, and it's just like they, they try to paint this continuous line of stream, right? But the reality is, and you guys do well pointing this out in the documentary, and you're, and you're not the only ones who talk about this, where there was a trajectory of the Black community up until the 1960s. And then something happened. Something happened that changed it, right? And I think that's what you're explaining to this decline that we see today where um, only 25% of black women will get married in their lifetime. 72% of children are born out of wedlock. Um, all of these different numbers. The um, What you see, you, you mentioned the Asians never kind of went through this period. Well, you go to major cities, you see a Chinatown. There are some cities mm -hmm. that have a side that's like all Korean, Korean banks and grocery stores and all of these things. In the black community, it seems to be absent. But the amazing part is that we know at one point in time it existed, you know, but nobody can give us a true answer as to why these things don't exist anymore. Right. It's almost right. like. Black Wall Street happened and there went the black community. Like that when all black businesses went up in smoke in Tulsa. It's like, you know, um, can you just kind of um and you, you've kind of been doing it, can you just kind of paint the the picture for the listeners who just aren't really aware of this history of what was the black community prior to the 1960s and the civil rights movement? And then kind of what has that trajectory been since? Yeah, so there's a uh, uh, interview between a woman named Nikki Giovanni and uh, what's his name? He was a poet, a homosexual black man. Baldwin, um, um, James Baldwin. James Baldwin. Yeah, James Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. So um, that in in that interview, Nikki Giovanni is at that time a young. Uh, black militant and intellectual. And James Baldwin was an older man by this time. And both of them are part of the LGBT 
uh, movement, which, I mean, this isn't a new movement. This is something that's existed for quite a time since the 70s. Uh, back then, it was called the Gay Liberation Movement. Um, anyway, so they're talking about Black culture and the shift of Black culture as they see it. And one of the things that Nikki Giovanni said in that interview, and this was sh this was uh, shot in 1972, I believe, that she says that one of the biggest shifts has been the black woman. And she says that, you know, my mother and aunts were pretty compliant when it came to their marital relationships. They were a kind of helpmate to their husbands. But my generation of women, and again, this is the 70s, we say, no way, we're going to go our, go our own way, she says. And so she's kind of admitting to this kind of rebellion that was very much in the air uh, around the 1970s. Again, it didn't only have to do with black people. It was, it was widespread amongst the youth generation in that time. It just had a different effect on different cultures, uh, so to speak. Uh, one of the things that you get specifically with uh, the black community that you didn't get with some of the other ethnic groups is the black exploitation era. This is something that people sleep on because we look at films like Superfly and The Mac as kind of staples in black culture. Uh, the same is true of shows like Good Times and others. Uh, we don't pay attention to the subliminal messaging that was being uh, uh, disseminated as a result of this kind of content. If you ask the average black person today, what is black culture? I guarantee you they'll start naming television shows. And that's a shame because what you should name is your upbringing and that of your grandparents and what it used to be like going to you know this place or that place with your grandparents and so on and so forth. And so again, it goes back to what I said earlier, we get our culture more from what is on the television screen and shows we remember than what our great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers were doing. Uh, so there's a kind of disconnect uh, between what life was like for Blacks in the, prior to the 60s and what it's like now, to the extent that you had uh, racial friction prior to the 1960s. Uh, much of that is blown way out of proportion and, and super exaggerated. Uh, and I'm sorry, I was trying to build, build up to your question, but I... I I forgot it. it. It kind of escapes me uh, now. Oh, um, just yeah, specifically, just, just what, turn, yeah, just a turning point of yeah. the trajectory of the community, and then like kind of uh -huh. it's gone down since. Like, can you yeah, like yeah. lay that history out for the audience? Because I know a lot of people just aren't familiar with. They believe the narrative that the black community has always been this downtrodden, poor, uh, urban ghetto community, mm -hmm. and that just isn't right. the okay. truth. Your truth, you know. And so, no, but yeah. no, you and did so a good job. I mean, I appreciate photos, you kind of you laying that out. Right. When you look at the photos, when you look at, uh, again, a lot of the footage that we use in our film and Uncle Tom too, and not to mention all of the photos and footage that hit the, hit the cutting room floor, because there was plenty more from where that came from. You see this kind of dignity, this kind of integrity uh, that existed in the black community prior to the 1960s, especially the South. Anytime we're told about the South by mainstream historians or mainstream educators, it's always a Jim Crow South, you know, South of the, of the, you know, Mason Dixie line. It was, you know, black bodies hanging from trees and it was all, you know, doom and gloom. That's the narrative that we're, we're given. Uh, but what you find is that, you know, for example, there was a study done by 
a black Harvard professor named Roland Fryer uh, in 2011, which actually exposed that the Ku Klux Klan, which is supposed to be this big, bad boogeyman, uh, was nothing more than a pyramid scheme, especially in the 1920s when it, when it had its uh, highest membership, that there were little to no correlations between the peak of the Ku Klux Klan and lynchings. And even to the extent that lynchings are recorded, one of the things that was done, unfortunately, is that the numbers were conflated. Namely, uh, those uh, lynchings that were hate crimes were conflated with the lynchings that were the result of, of uh, capital punishment uh, through due process. Uh, lynchings that included both blacks and whites for crimes committed. And so the process by which some of these numbers were collected were dishonest. And of course it gave dishonest results because the idea is if you can uh, uh, entice a degree of fear in people, you can then control them. And that's exactly what persists to this very day. And so it, it's become a kind of thing of paranoia that's mm -hmm. being instilled in black youth where yeah. you believe that because you come from a lineage of folks who have always been oppressed, who have always had a boot on their neck, uh, who uh, have always been subject to racism by the white man, um, um, you should have you have a grievance with this country. You have something to be bitter about. And so that's why you should vote this way. That's why you should back these policies. That's why you should think this way. And so even though we have so many opportunities here in this country, we hold ourselves back and we, we refuse to seize those opportunities because we feel that there's a racist boogeyman around the corner who will snatch it out of our hands. But if that's the case, then why is it that our African brothers and sisters uh, come here from Nigeria, from Kenya, from Ghana, from other countries, and they start their businesses and they do quite well to where a generation or two from, from now, uh, their children are in the upper middle class. The same is true of our neighbors uh, south of the southern border, you know, coming from Honduras and Mexico and other countries like that. And so why is it that these people with dark skin can walk into America and do quite well for themselves. And I'm not hating on them. Uh, hey, more power to you. But, but you know, they have dark skin like we do. And so what's really going on? Uh, I suggest that it's a, a mindset issue and not so much a, a, a issue of reality. Do you think part of that mindset issue um, was instilled by King and that whole civil rights movement? Again, King was a phenomenal orator. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a man who who grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. His father was a pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. So he had a front row seat uh, to his father's a very skilled uh, uh, ability to, to deliver sermons. Um, Martin Luther King from a very early age knew that he was intelligent and he took great pride, great pride in his intelligence. Uh, he wrote in his letters that by age 12, he had already rejected the deity of Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And by the time he was 15, he had already finished high school and went off to college. He had no interest in being a pastor, but he was advised to, to go to seminary and to become a pastor. Um, he says in his letters also that by the time he did go to college, he had already uh, uh, accepted uh, uh, the social interpretation of the gospel. Um, and that he already accepted liberalism. He was encouraged by some of his professors to, to go into the ministry. And if you look at correspondence between some of his professors, his white professors who uh, 
uh, were engaged in the work of theology, but they were also Marxists. And what they're telling each other is Martin King is precisely the Negro minister who can take our ideology into the stubborn South, the stubborn Black South, because he won't he won't fall. Uh, how how did they word it? Uh, it escapes me. I don't want to I don't want to misquote them, but but basically they saw in Martin King um, a kind of vehicle um, who can take Marxist ideology into the South. Now these are their words, um, so he knew full well what he was doing. Uh, whenever he went to Alabama in 1957, I believe, he was recruited to be a part of the uh, making of the bus boycott. Uh, there was a young black woman, a girl, who was going to do it, but she, uh, well, I think she actually did do it. And and um, whenever word got out that she was pregnant, uh, the man who, I forget his name as well, it escapes me. Um, the, the, you you uh, you you come across so many names that you forget some of them. But the guy who whose idea it was to do the bus boycott to begin with, um, he went through two women before they landed on Rosa Parks, who was a treasurer for the local NAACP. And so Martin Luther King, he became kind of the face of the bus boycott. And uh, after its success. Uh, you had a lot of the white mainstream progressive media basically placing King on a pedestal. He got to travel the world. He got to uh, go to England where he met with a, um, a communist organizer named CLR James. And he told James about this, uh, this nonviolent philosophy. And James wrote a letter back to the communist front groups in America saying that this is a tactic that we have to use if we're going to make any kind of headway in America. And so as it turns out, King got the nonviolent philosophy from a man named Bayard Russin. Bayard Russin was in Martin Luther King's inner circle, and he got the philosophy uh, as a young communist organizer. He was a part of the uh, Communist Party, and so too was Stanley Levison, who was in Martin Luther King's inner circle. He was a, uh, a treasurer for the for a communist front group in New York. And so he surrounded himself with these kind of communist advisors. And so this notion that a lot of people have that Martin Luther King didn't really skew leftward until the last three years of his life is not rooted in truth. The fact of the matter is he had always been either uh, a kind of socialist or Marxian in his philosophy. And uh, unfortunately, what we found is that to the extent that he was a a so-called Christian pastor that was merely a guise to kind of inject uh, this kind of Marxian worldview into the black church and into the black community. If you look at Martin Luther King's footage or the footage of Martin Luther King, and we've looked through every second of every hour of every piece of Martin Luther King footage that exists, we haven't found not one sermon where he's actually preaching the gospel, where he's actually telling people to repent and turn to Christ, not one. Um, he was doing in his day what Raphael Warnock, who is his predecessor, is doing today, uh, namely using the church to push for Marxist social justice in America. Ooh, we gonna get some letters on this one, Kevin. I'm just gonna forward them on. I'm gonna forward them on. <laughs> look, 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 look. I'm sitting over here because 
we talked about on, on another episode, but you now I started doing history of my family. And I realized that my great grandfather on my father's side was the founding member of the NAACP in Birmingham and was very close with King and, and um, um, Fred Shuttlesworth and all those guys in Birmingham. And he's on the letters going back and forth. And now I'm starting to be like, hmm, I don't, I don't know about this this family lineage here. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to have to forward them letters on. I'm also going to have to forward the letters on when people think you're trying to blame women for the degradation of the black community. (laughs) Hey, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you what Nikki Giovanni said. These are her words. You can go back and listen to them. This is her interpretation. And all I'm doing is saying that, you know, and the thing is, when you look at, when you look at the number that second wave feminism has had on the black community, Mm yes, we're not, we're not talking about that. Mm -hmm. And because we're not talking about that, uh, the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse because so long as you pretend that a problem doesn't exist, that problem is not going to get any better. It's not going to magically get better. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you look at, you know, the early 2000s, for example, just the early 2000s black pop culture, and you have, you know, Little Boosie's song, I-N-D-B, or I-N, I can't even spell, I-N-D-E-P-E-N-D-E-N-T. Do you know what that means? When you look at, um, you know, Destiny's Child, all the single ladies, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, all the women who's independent, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's like, you have all of this communication, the subliminal messaging uh, that is uh, 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 that is being done at the expense of the black family. And we're not talking about that. You're coming after my, my groups now. I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> we might need to end early. <laughs> but you know what? Like in all seriousness, you know, I became a teenager in the 90s and it was early 90s. I ain't trying to, you know lie on my age but um the main message growing up in south central los angeles was you don't as a black woman you don't need a man as a black woman everything you do you should be able to do on your own and we've talked about that on this podcast before and um but i i never connected it to this feminist movement nor did i connect it to a lot of the messaging that had come around in my mom's generation to my mom that is now mm-hmm. coming to me. And so when you think of like single ladies and Destiny's Child and um, like TLC scrubs and, you know, all of those things, it's like there's a certain way in which a man looks, especially a black man and what he looks like through that lens. So, you know, like um, what was that song they saying to the left, to the left, you know, mm-hmm. like, everything you got in, you know, in the box to the left, because I'm, I'm the ruler of this house. It's my car. I'm the one who provides for you. Well, what does that make you think of as, as far as Uh the the black family goes? Well, the man is really expendable. You can throw him to the left because everything that is coming in is brought in by the black woman anyway, or a man is nothing but a scrub, you know, um, who doesn't have his own, he can't, he has to, to borrow from his friend or, you know, just all of these things. And then even songs like Independent Woman, where it's not necessarily, you know, demeaning Black men, The there's a, an imbalance of, you know, how high we're lifting Black women. And as a Black woman, like, I, I 
you know, I'm okay. Like I'm not trying to put myself down and, you know, demean <laughs> yeah. myself, but we also, we have to do this from a biblical lens as well. And remember that each sex has a role and that the sexes come together to create families. And as se different sexes come together to create family, how that family functions. But a lot of that, a lot of that messaging and biblical messaging gets usurped through the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Bible says to see to it that you're not taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. Mm -hmm. And the question is specifically for the church is what has happened in black culture that has came to us through this philosophies that we haven't recognized as being hollow and deceptive uh, because they've come to us under the guise of the church. Uh, a lot of people believe that because, uh, the folks who were at the head of the civil rights movement were meeting in churches that naturally it had God's blessing on it. Now I'm a person who believes that, you know, in God's providence and you know, what men may mean for evil, God could use for good, you know? And so it, I, I think that, uh, uh, there's a silver lining in a lot of what goes on in the, in history and in the world. Uh, but at the same time, um, what are some of the reverberations or some of the philosophies that we have uh, allowed to kind of supplement the gospel, which have no business being anywhere near the gospel? Are we being serious and intellectually honest enough to answer those questions? So. We only have a little bit of time left, but we gonna use every minute. I'm not even playing. <laughs> um, looking at today in this, this current cultural moment, um, and looking at the black church, one of the people that I see, I mean, she makes the rounds more than like Billy Graham, Stacey Abrams. She is in every black pulpit, I feel like, in Atlanta. I was just in Atlanta, and I'm not from, I'm sure if you're familiar with who Stacey Abrams is, but she's running for, okay, all right. So, she, but her message in these black pulpits is abortion. It's mm -hmm. um, like gay rights and liberation for, you know, the homosexual and, you know, owning your own body as a woman. It's very demonic messaging of, you know, you should be able to, you know, murder your baby up until X number of weeks and things like that. And I honestly, I agree with you. I think that part of the the rhetoric that's coming from the pulpit for many people, it looks like, well, these things are being baptized in Jesus, and so, yes, of course, if if we're allowing, you know, this woman to come and speak, or we have Raphael Warnock in our pulpit, then of course this must be the message of God. It, yeah. yeah, and I think that that is just continuing the downward spiral. One of the things that Vody Bakum says is that if Satan came to us with red horns mm -hmm. and a pitchfork, everybody would run. He's a deceiver. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, he, he comes to us as an angel of light. I mean, if you look at Christ, uh, who was in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan appeared to him and he tried to get Satan to bow down to him. Uh, what did he use? He started using scripture mm -hmm. uh, to try to convince uh, our Lord <laughs> to yeah. bow down to him. And so what makes us think that he's not going to do the same thing to us? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we have to, as the Bible say, test every spirit to see if it's of God. Um and again, when you look at Martin Luther King, I'm sorry to say, uh, and you look at what he taught and what he believed, he did not believe in the God of the Bible. He just didn't. And I'm not saying that to be ugly. I'm not saying that 
uh, and malice. I'm saying it because it's true. True. Uh, because the fact of the matter is that so long as Martin Luther King occupies a place, uh, I don't care if we're talking what the subject is, if we're talking about race relations or, or whatever the case may be, so long as Martin Luther King occupies a place that Jesus should have, we're going to continue to mm. spin down this spiral of confusion. Mm. Now, everybody who has... Um, Black Jesus, Martin Luther King, and um, John F. Kennedy, JFK, hanging in their <laughs> church or their kitchen is going to be real upset right now. Yeah. You know that, you know it is. I just um, just yesterday saw that Michelle Obama had created an organization. I'm forgetting the name of the organization, but this organization put out uh, like a twerking video in trying to encourage young black people like this ratchet generation um, or not saying that the entire generation is ratchet, but like the ratchet culture um, to get yeah. out and vote. And it the name of the video was no voting. No, with a V fucking. And it was like, if you want to sleep with me, then you need to make sure that you vote. One of the last questions that, you know, that I want us to round out with um, is how was the demo? I feel like the Democratic Party is just screwing everybody, like especially when it comes to black people. Like, like there's an intentional, um, an intentional playing of young black people, and it comes through in this way of we're going to appeal to the most debased part of you. We're going to appeal to your vote through your drive for sex. We're going to appeal to you through, you know, horrible rap music, um, you know, and lyrics that are just so degrading to both men and women. Mm-hmm. What do you think, like, do you think that their intention is, you know, just that, like, that's all they see young black people as being, even the more elite black people like Michelle Obama? Yeah, I didn't know she was affiliated with that. Um, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they know full well what they're doing. And it's a shame how, I mean, this should cause Black people everywhere to reflect. Uh, why is it that these power elites uh, use this kind of messaging to communicate to Black people? What does that, what does that say about us that they feel like they can do this to get to us, to reach us. And it's not its not far off from what's always been going on. If you look at, for example, uh, this radio program from the early 1900s called Amos and Andy, it was these two white guys who would put on blackface and they would, you know, do a lot of, you know, minstrel type shows uh, as a form of so-called black entertainment. And there were some black people who enjoyed it, but you also had a large section of the black community who spoke out against it and said, this doesn't represent us, this isn't us. And to the extent that such black people spoke up, you had the NAACP there to slap them down and say, oh, it's just entertainment. It's just, you know, all in good fun. And so the NAACP of today is the same as the NAACP is of, you know, of, of yesterday. Um, an organization that was started by white Marxists to tell us what it means to be black and what it you know, what that entails. And so they've been doing it ever since, again, the turn of the 20th century, and it continues to this very day. Now, my concern is that as time marches on from the early 1900s to today, 
the kind of pushback as becoming less and less and less as values begin to erode all the more. And so this is a time for you know those of us who are black and who do have values and who do care about our image, not, not as black people, but just as people, mm-hmm. as Christians, uh, that we stand up and say, well, no, this doesn't represent us at all. Um, and that starts in the home, really. I mean, I can shout from the rooftops, I can make videos on social media and do all sorts of things, but really the most important part is in the home because my kids are going to know uh, what it means to be a decent human being, not a black man, not a black woman, but a decent human being. Uh, blackness is more of a of a mindset than it is a, a color of one's skin. Yeah, it's a it's a concept, and that's certainly what it's become. Again, as I said earlier, if you ask the average black person what is black culture, they'll tell you about something they saw on a television, and they'll they'll cling to that thing. And that's not just black people. If you ask anybody what black culture is, they'll tell you about some basketball player or some mm-hmm. rapper or some dance or something like that because that's what our so-called community has been relegated to mm-hmm. and so you know aw tozer said that what comes into your mind when you think about god is the most important thing about you i would say that the second most thing is what you tell yourself in terms of who you are the kind of stories you tell yourself what your identity is if my identity as a christian is in anything but christ then i'm setting myself up for failure and so uh, there's a push uh, to uh, uh, to insist on the religion of blackness. When you look at our history, once again, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Black is beautiful. Black this, black that, black, black everything. Black, black, black. Everything's about black. Now we have our black girl magic. We have our pro-black. I buy black. Everything is about black. And so what is black? If you insist that everything is about black, what is that? Tell me what that means. And I guarantee you it's something that replaces the deity of God. It's this, it's this desire that we all have and that we've ha- all had since the Garden of Eden. We want to be like God. We want to be God, choosing for ourselves what is good and evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we're called to repent. That's why we're called to humble ourselves and take up our crosses and to reject our natural birth and natural lessons that we were taught by natural men and women and to choose instead to cling to the word of God. And and Jesus Christ is the word. Yeah. And to make him our Lord, to make him our Lord means that I'm subordinate to him as my Lord. And so does Jesus want me to be black or does he want me to be a decent human being who's led by his word? Now, that doesn't mean that I'm ashamed of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm ashamed of the texture of my hair. It doesn't mean that I'm ashamed of my physical appearance. It just means that all things are to be brought into captivity to Christ. Yeah. So, man, that's good. And I think it's good to point out that what you describe as blackness, what people call blackness, is in a lot of ways at war or bumps head with traditional Orthodox Christianity. And so, black people hold to traditional. Orthodox Christianity, which was a lot of the older generation, which is us, we are told we are not black, right? All skin folk and kin folk, right? Because black is an ideology. And when you really break down what it is, it really is the leftist Marxist ideology. And any black person who doesn't hold to it, you're told you're not black. And so I think that's really important for people to realize is what is the driving force behind blackness? 
What is the driving force behind what you're told to be, to be authentically black, right? And it really is simply, you must align with leftist Marxist thinking framework and, and, and thought leaders. And if you don't line up with them, then you're the uncle Tom, you're, you know, not black. And so um, I think it's, it's just, I think people need to understand what we're being sold because the average person out there does not understand that, as in the documentary said, there is a war going on that is bigger than the Negro, and the Negro has no idea. Mm-hmm. It's just a pawn. Yep. We are just mm-hmm. pawns yep. in a bigger war, and we are so, <laughs> we really do think it's about us. We think everything's about black people. Yeah. We think everything <laughs> that happens in the world is, is aimed at black people. It's the most narcissistic thing, and we're really just the, the useful idiots. We are being used as pawns in a war that is bigger than us, and people need to realize. Yep. And as Vadi said, it is a spiritual war at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know. And right. people need to wake up and, and realize that, and stop being stop being sheep. Stop just being mm-hmm. pushed along to go along. Stop thinking that this is what it means to be black because. If we go historically, this is not what it means to be a black person, to be a leftist Marxist, you know, mm-hmm. to talk about abortion and all of this social justice stuff from the pulpit. That's not that's not black culture. That is not historic black culture. That is not the historic black community. That is something that we've been sold since the 60s. And yeah. it, has, it has failed us. It has totally failed us. And they need to own it, take responsibility for it. Our churches aren't what they used to be. Our communities aren't what they used to be. Our businesses aren't what they used to be. And it's all because we adopted, we, we got hoodwinked and we went for something that we thought was for our good. We got sold a bill of goods. And now we're still looking at the government for our next handout, AKA reparations. And we think that's gonna fix it when we've totally screwed it up because we've totally turned from big G God to little G government, right? And so, Wow. Yeah. 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 So, Chad, man, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate what um, I mean, because I follow you on every social media platform. I see what you're doing. I see how you are engaging mm-hmm. those leftist thought leaders and their fraudulent mindset and what they're selling and the way you're coming at them to make them look foolish because they have no comeback to what you're saying and what you're pointing out right. in their hypocrisy. And so um, I, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate what you're doing, man. Well, thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. I have one more question. I don't know where y'all like trying to wrap up. Hold up. <laughs> sit back. Land the plane. Land the plane. Okay. I know. Uh-uh. We going to circle one more game. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Well, I have two questions. Sorry. First no, you're question fine. Goes, some, goes down to something. My auntie, Miss Carol Swain, uh, she don't really know that she's my auntie, but I do love that lady. <laughs> um... <laughs> She ran for office um, out in Nashville and she made a, a comment um, in Uncle Tom. And I want I'm not sure if it was one or two, um, but she made a comment about the Republican Party and how they've missed capturing a lot of the black vote. I'm wondering what mm-hmm. is your thought on that? Like, what is your thought on the Republican movement to embrace conservative blacks? Because historically, Blacks have always voted in block. When we were voting Republican, we voted in block. When we switched over to voting mm-hmm. Democrat, we still vote in block. But right now, what we're seeing is not so much um, a, a, a 
you know, let us continue to vote and block. We're actually moving ideologically and separating where there would be more, you know, black Republican votes, I believe, if we were perhaps pursued or um, considered a viable um, vote. I don't know that I see it happening. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the Republican Party of today, especially the establishment Republican Party, is uh, basically the Democrat Party five years ago, five or 10 years ago. That's the nature of the establishment Republican Party. It's a far cry from its origin, that's for sure. Uh, namely, that you know we do live in a constitutional republic uh, that's ruled by law and uh, and takes into consideration and acknowledges and seeks to preserve the sovereignty of the municipality and the sovereignty of the state. I know that uh, unfortunately goes over a lot of people's head because we're not thought we're not taught to think of our our, our republic in that way. We're taught that we live in a democracy, and there's a lot of misconception, purposeful misconception uh, that's out there. And some of it's being spread right now by Stacey Abrams, who you alluded to earlier. So there's this uh, severe ignorance of our republic and why our republic is great, um, um, and why it be why it made why and how it made America a world superpower to begin with, and we don't know we don't have any clue about that. And so the Republican Party is so far removed from that, and all they do is either play catch up or act as reactionaries. And so that's not only the uh, RNC, but that's also Republicans on social media. Uh, many of them, in fact, most of them are mere reactionaries. They're always talking about what the left is doing. And can you believe Cardi B did this and look at so-and-so twerking and so on and so forth. And so nothing really kind of goes below the surface. Mm -hmm. Nothing is really deep. And that's problematic on many different fronts. Uh, on one front, we're trained and indoctrinated to not think critically. And that's an indictment on our public school systems. Uh, I, for one, am against the centralization of the schools to begin with, but that's a separate story entirely. Um, all that to say that there is this mass dumbing down of the generations, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. We will one day soon be an idiocracy if we're not there already. Um, but the to, to answer your question as far as the black vote, um, if you were to take that study that I quoted earlier, where 60% of blacks favor socialism and 40% of blacks favor capitalism. Even though I'm displeased with the fact that we, that the majority of us support uh, socialism, I think that 40% is actually pretty high and it's a good thing. Now, what if the black vote for a Republican and Democrat was split much the same as uh, the numbers of how many of us support uh, socialism or, and capitalism. Namely, what if it was 40% of black people voted for Republicans and 60% of black people voted for Democrats? If that were to happen, then the Democrat Party is done for. Because even though we're 11% 11 of the electorate, uh, the Democrat Party relies on the black vote. Otherwise, it, it just can't win. It just can't win the electorate without the black vote. And so if we can dip in, if Republicans could dip in to the Democrat stronghold on the black vote by 10 to 23%, again, the Democrat party is completely done for. 
And so the way that you do that, in my opinion, is to tap in to attaching the stigma of socialism on the Democrat Party. You have to drive that home as often as you can. You have to first and foremost educate people on what socialism is. You have to do so through storytelling. You have to do it through messaging. You have to do it through many different fronts. And if, and to the extent that you can do that and you can take that stigma and attach it to the Democrat Party, you'll have less and less uh, people, black people in particular, voting for the Democrat Party. Um, again, it just comes down to messaging. Uh, if we think that we can only do it through grassroots politics, namely the you know voting and 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 going door to door telling people to vote for Republican candidates, it's not going to happen. Okay. It, it has to be done through messaging and propaganda because that's how the propaganda is how we got in this mess to begin with. So it's going to take propaganda to undo it, unfortunately. Yeah, and you mentioned something earlier that's really important for people to understand is the Democrats or just the left in general, the progressive, the Marxist left, they've studied socialism, they've studied psychology. I've always said the Democrats understand social movements and marketing more so than the Republicans. Republicans should try to go on good old fashioned American spirit is gonna win the day, right? And the right. other side is saying, no, we're gonna educate your children. We're gonna take over Hollywood. We're gonna take over the movies. We're gonna take over the music industry. We're gonna take over all the means of culture and we're going to mm -hmm. just repro reproduce the next generation. And the Republicans or the right just seems to be totally clueless on it. It's almost as if we don't understand it, you know? And so, yeah, to go to your point, if that is to change, it's going to have to be the Republican Party is going to do a much better job at messaging um, mm -hmm. than they are currently doing, because right now it's pretty bad. Yeah. And the last question is, is there an Uncle Tom 3 coming? <laughs> the answer is in part two. Yes, it is. Now, see, I, okay, <laughs> yes, I, yeah. I know, I know. At the end, yes, yes. Now, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you can or if you want to tell us what the focus of the third one will be. We covered some of it here. the uh, The tagline of part three will be the myth of blackness. Mm. And we're going to look at some of the driving forces of what people think blackness is and where does where does these ideas come from? Mm. Um, I think Kevin hit the nail right on the head when he said that uh, they've managed to conflate blackness with left wing Marxism. Yep, they've done that masterfully. Yep. And we're going to be exploring that in part three. That's yeah. awesome. I can't wait. Right? I cannot <laughs> wait. So good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here and having this conversation with us. So we, we end it now? We can end now? Well, I, I don't know. Do you have another question? I, I mean, no, I no, go ahead. talk go, all day. No, no, you've been circling. Go ahead and land the plane. Go ahead. <laughs> Why you got to do me like that? All right. You guys, thank you so much for being here. Please um, like the show, share it, get the word out. If you have not watched Uncle Tom 2, I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you're waiting for. You talking about letting the plane circle. No, y'all need to go ahead and land that and watch it. Um, you can actually, is do you know if um, Virgil Walker's code is still working? Like, it, is that it, uh, still available still for people? Yes, it still works. So you can go to, it's, is it SalemNow.com? I'd have to look yes. back at Yeah, that, that or UncleTom.com. Okay. Either um, one. His, yes. his code works for both. Um, and his code is UTT. 
to VW. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. UT two VW. Um, go out there and give our uncle some love by using his code. Um, and let people know that you are watching uncle Tom because of Virgil Walker and Chad, just thank you so much. Thank you for bringing so many facts uh, about history and helping us to understand, you know, what uncle Tom two is about and what the goal is, you know, in, in, in reaching black people with truth um, so that we can continue to educate our community, but also, you know, move forward from the place that we're at. Mm, yeah. And Thank what, you guys for having me. I really had a lot of fun. Absolutely. No. And everybody follow Chad O. Jackson on Instagram, Twitter. You will not be disappointed. Follow, go follow. Awesome. Thanks so much, you guys. Talk with you again. Bye. Bye.